Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for, for today, for uh, the word that you have given me to give to these people. Father, I just pray that you would use it uh, for your glory and their edification. Give you thanks. We give you praise. And I ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to start out at least by giving credit to uh, Bishop Joseph Garlington. I don't know if you are aware of him. Some of uh, you may have heard of him before. Uh, the core of this message kind of came from him. Uh, we were just at a conference this past week. He was one of the speakers. I heard him speak a couple of times. Um, he is delightful. If you ever get the chance to see him, it's, it's truly an event. Um, that's, I will say that much. But one of the things that I also learned was how to give credit uh, to other people when you give their messages. So, uh, and Randy Clark taught us this, it's the first time you do what I just did. You acknowledge that it was Bishop Garlington and so on and so forth. The second time, you just say Bishop's, Bishop Garlington said, and then you go forth from there. The third time you give the message, you said others have said, and then the fourth time it's, well, I've always said. So that's the evolution of, of credit. So it's not an I've always said today. This is bishops. I should say at least the, the kernel of this message. This isn't all, some of this did come from God to me. Uh, but the idea really came from him. And one of the things that he, um, when he gave this message, is he started off telling the story of a friend of his who is an evangelist and a, and a prophet. His name is Mark DuPont. I don't know if any of you are ever have been aware of him. I had not heard of him before. You can go out and, and look on the, uh, on, he has a website. But anyway, he was talking about how Mark was, was ready to go out and preach at a particular church. And just as he's getting ready to go out and preach, he believes that he hears God say, get your heart above your head. And he, he was, he's like, what? You know, and then he hears it again, get your heart above your head. And he, he cannot figure out exactly how that would even work. You know, he's thinking of, you know, like laying on a bed, put your feet on the bed, put your head down below, and all these kinds of things. So, but he, he kind of just puts it out of his head because he's got to actually go up and, and deliver a message. So uh, he does that, doesn't really think anything else about what, you know, God had, had said to him. Until the next day, and he's at his hotel room or whatever, and the pastor gives him a call and says, look, I need you to come with me right now. My daughter is in the hospital, and she's about to give birth, but the baby's in trouble. They're both in, in some distress. So pastor comes, picks him up, and takes him to the hospital. And while they're there with some other family members in the room, the doctor comes rushing in, and he says, um, if we don't change some things right now, this baby is not going to make it. And so he looks at the young mother-to-be and, and says, I need you to get, out of, to get out of bed and to get your heart above your head. Well, all of a sudden, this, you know, this comes back to him. And, and she's you know, obviously struggling with this as well. And so they help her out of the bed, and they help her down to her knees, and then he says, now put your forehead on the floor. And in that moment, he realizes that her heart is above her head. 
and he understands what God was saying to him. Now, with that as kind of a backdrop, I want to, uh, to go forth into the message that we're going to talk about today, which is from the Gospel of John. Well, this is John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And I'm going to read it from the, uh, it's called the Passion Translation. It's a fairly new translation, but I really like it. Before we go into that, though, I want to go and just talk about a couple of things, just give you a little bit of context, historical background on this. Um, <clears throat> this is the same story that also appears in Mark's Gospel, which is it's at chapter 14. I think it starts at verse 3. Uh, and from that, we also sort of know, even though John doesn't tell us this, that this dinner party that we're going to talk about takes place at the home of Simon the leper. Okay. Now, Jesus had just healed Simon the leper. Um, but you know, the funny thing about this, I think, is that you know how some, there are some nicknames that just never go away? You know, nobody is going to go to a dinner party at the home of Simon the leper. <laughs> if he still has leprosy. So even though he's been healed, he's been cured, he's still Simon the leper. You know, it's like being called stinky and somehow that just sticks with you forever. Um, so anyway, that's where this is being held, even though it doesn't say so in this particular version of the story. Um, in the text, it refers to a leader of perfume. We'll go through this here in a second. Um, now you could also translate it as a pound, it's a lot however you want to think about it. You know, I think the typical perfume bottle is like 3.3 or 3.4 ounces, or it's 100 milliliters. Um, that's what you commonly find today. So this is quite a bit more. Um, we also talk about how expensive this perfume is. I was just curious, does anyone know what the most expensive perfume made is? I guess that's encouraging. Actually, it's sort of discouraging. If you knew, you probably could afford it. Clive Christian's Imperial Majesty, which sells for $12,722 an ounce. But you can't buy just an ounce. You have to buy a 16.9 ounce bottle, which will set you back $215,000. Yeah, I was going to say, if we, could just, if we could just find someone who wears this, we'll just all go up and just want to see what that's, what does that much money smell like, right? Now, this, this particular perfume in the story is made from a, from, it's called nard, and it actually comes from a nard plant. It, they, they get it out of the root and the spike of the nard plant, which is why you also hear it referred to as spike nard, Okay. Um, that's where it comes from. Now, in this particular translation, Judas refers to a fortune. Now, the fortune is, is in other translations, is sometimes uh, also referred to as 300 denarii, or 300 silver coins, um, which is roughly equivalent to a year's salary at that time. You know, a day laborer, so say a minimum wage worker, would usually get one coin for that day's work, one denarius. Um, and um, if you worked, I think I calculated it out, if you worked full-time for a year at a minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, it comes out to roughly $21,000, $22,000. So 
So that's sort of what we're talking about here. It was a fortune for the people of this time to have that much money, okay? All right, so with that sort of as a backdrop, let's look at the story. So this is John 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover began, Jesus went back to Bethany, the town where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They had prepared a supper for Jesus. Martha served, and Lazarus and Mary were among those at table. Mary picked up an alabaster jar filled with nearly a liter of extremely rare and costly perfume, the purest extract of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet. Then she wiped them dry with her long hair, and the fragrance of the costly oil filled the house. But Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, the betrayer, spoke up and said, What a waste! We could have sold this perfume for a fortune and given the money to the poor. In fact, Judas had no heart for the poor. He only said this because he was a thief and in charge of the money case. He would steal money whenever he wanted from the funds given to support Jesus' ministry. Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone. She has saved it for the time of my burial. You'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. No, this is about a week beforehand. So the title of this message was The Extravagance of Authentic Worship. And I would suggest that what Mary did was extravagant. It was actually even scandalous to a certain extent. Um, it was actually considered improper for Jewish women to unbind their hair in front of men. And so, or in public in general. And so that adds sort of a hint of scandal to this as well. Not only that some would have perhaps seen it as scandalous, that this woman is doing this to a rabbi, a man of some importance in the community. One of the commentators I read said this act, what she did at this dinner supper, would be somewhat equivalent to a woman at a formal dinner party hiking her skirt up to her hips. It's that, that's sort of how offensive this would be taken, okay, just to get the idea in your head. But the point of this text that I think is relevant to us is this, authentic worship should be extravagant. It's not to be done half-heartedly. It's not to be an afterthought. It's not something that we should think is okay to miss or to avoid or come late to. So the question that I think needs to be answered in all of this is, when is your worship extravagant? What is it that we can learn from Mary examples in this story about how we are to worship extravagantly? Or to put it another way, what qualities should your worship possess in order for it to reach the level of extravagance? I think first of all, that's not the first one, that is. Your worship is extravagant when it celebrates God. We see that in verses one and two. Six days before the Passover began, Jesus went back to Bethany, the town where he raised Lazarus from the dead. They had prepared a supper for Jesus. 
Martha served and Lazarus and Mary were among those at the table. The reason that they were having this dinner was to celebrate Jesus. Well, why now? Well, because just like a week or so beforehand, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. <laughs> and Lazarus wasn't just a little dead. He was a whole lot dead. <laughs> Remember what his sister Martha said, Lord, by this time there will be an, or an odor, for he has been dead four days. Now, I didn't check this, but I'm fairly certain the King James translation for this is, he stinketh. Well, guess what? Before you got Jesus in your life, you stinketh. Because you were dead in your transgressions, and you had no hope of eternal life. But because of his great love for you, God refused to leave you that way. And so he devised a way for you to live forever in the presence of God, no less. So Mary was celebrating Lazarus' resurrection from the dead. That's why she chose to worship Jesus so extravagantly. You, on the other hand, you are the one who was raised from the dead. That's a reason to celebrate God. That's why we should all engage in extravagant worship. These things are not behaving today. Your worship is extravagant when it costs you something. See this in the very first part of verse 3, verse 3a. Mary picked up an alabaster jar filled with nearly a liter of extremely rare and costly perfume, the purest extract of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet. Mary's worship of Jesus cost her something. And we've already talked about how expensive the perfume was and how freely and extravagantly, it says she broke open the jar in some translations, which means there was no putting it back. And she poured it out on Jesus' feet as her act of worship. And so in some sense, Mary understood the second quality of authentic worship, that it costs you something. She may have even known, been aware of the story of David, who was king of Israel and, and, and a man after God's own heart. Well, he understood this too. See, there's a story in 1 Chronicles chapter 24 about an angel who commanded David to put up an altar to the, on the threshing floor of a, a man named Ornan. And so David goes to Ornan and says, I want to buy your threshing floor. Well, Ornan tries to give it to him. I mean, it's the king after all, right? And he says, I'm going to give, not only am I going to give you that, I'm going to give you oxen for the sacrifice, you can burn my tools, and here's some more wheat for another offering. But David says no. In fact, his exact words were in, in verse 24, but King David said to Ornan, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that what cost me nothing. Does your worship cost you anything? 
Maybe it needs to cost you a couple of extra minutes of sleep so you are here and ready to engage in worship when it starts. Maybe it needs to cost you some discomfort as you do something that you don't normally do, such as raise your hands or dance. Maybe it needs to cost you your dislike of a particular song and understand that that song was not really meant for you, but for God. See, there's a story that I heard one pastor tell about a man who came up to him after a worship service, and he says, Pastor, I didn't like most of those songs today. I just, I couldn't worship them. I just didn't like them. The pastor looked at the man, which, who he knew, and he says, well, let me ask you a question. He said, do you fish? And the man said, well, yeah, I do. He says, okay, well, what do you use for bait? And the man says, well, worms. I use worms. And so the pastor says, well, do you lick them before you put them on the hook? And the guy goes, well, no. Why would I? It doesn't matter to me what the worm tastes like. It's not for me. It's for the fish. And the pastor said, exactly, and walked away. Those songs aren't for you. They're for God. And I can guarantee you, you may not like them, but he does. Because they're sung to him, and they're sung for his honor, and they're sung for his glory. Your worship is extravagant when it costs you something. Your worship is also extravagant when it leaves something on you. The second half of verse 3 says, Then she wiped them dry, meaning Jesus' feet, with her long hair, and the fragrance of the costly oil filled the house. And I think what this is saying is, you can't worship God extravagantly and not get touched in the process. The fragrance may have filled the house, but I can tell you there were two people in that room that smelled it a lot stronger than everybody else. Jesus and Mary. Bishops mentioned as he was talking about this particular point, he had a sort of a visual. He says, Now, can you imagine Mary as she's walking home with her hair like that? And that one of her friends sees her and goes, Girl, what happened to your hair? <laughs> but the point of this is. Extravagant worship not only glorifies God, it has an impact on the worshiper. Maybe you'll feel closer to God as a result of it. Maybe there's more of a connection between you and Him as a result of your worship. I honestly can't predict what it might look or feel like for you. All I can tell you is that if you approach worship from an extravagant perspective, you will not be the same afterwards as you were before. Your worship is extravagant when it brings criticism and judgment. Verses 4 and 5, But Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, the betrayer, 
spoke up and said, what a waste. We could have sold this perfume for a fortune and given money to the poor. See, Jesus, Judas' response revealed his focus. It's what was important to him. Now, the text tells us that his response was inauthentic, right? Because what he, that he was a thief and he stole money. Can I suggest another reason why he said that? Could it possibly be, because keep in mind, we're a week away from his act of betrayal. Is it possible that as he watched Mary worship, that his conscience just bothered him to such an extent that he had to strike back at her. He had to criticize her because he couldn't stand to watch what was going on because he knew what he was going to do. Some people have a particular response when they see worship occurring. They might say something like, well, you don't take all that. You don't take all that dancing and and flag waving and hand raising to worship God. Really? Where does that kind of a comment come from? Does it come from a place in you? That says, I wish I could be that free. Is it a prideful response to what you see going on? Because you're not willing to humble yourself enough to do the same thing. Worship is extravagant when it brings criticism and judgment. Now as a last point, This is not part of this text, but I felt like it was important to add to this particular message. Okay? Your worship is extravagant when you worship even if God says no. And for this, we're going to look at a different text. Like I said, I don't normally mix these up like this, but I felt like this was important. And so for this particular text, we're going to look at 2 Samuel 12, 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, 
We spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. You see, it's easy to worship God on the mountaintop. Right? You get a new job, you get a promotion. I don't know. You just have a special experience with God and you're like, yo, yay, God. Praise you, I praise you, wonderful, you're everything, I love you. But what about when things get tough? It doesn't get much tougher than losing a child. I think most of you in here are parents can relate to that. They always, I mean, I have always heard that is one of the most difficult things that you can possibly go through in life, is to have a child predecease you. Here's David. Days without food, on the ground, undoubtedly praying and pleading and beseeching God, don't take this child, don't take this child, let him live. But God said no. So, so David then got up and went into the house and threw himself a huge pity party. No. He got up and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. Sort of brings to mind Job's story. Doesn't it? Lord, I'll praise you when things are good, and I'll praise you when things aren't so good. But blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, when it's all said and done, what I think the message of the story is to us is the same one that I mentioned at the very beginning. Extravagant worship is about getting our heart above our head. So many of these things that I mentioned, these, these various points, these are all head things, right? These thoughts about, well, you know, you don't have to dance like that to praise God. Thoughts about whether you like the music or not. Thoughts about worship costing you something. See, if we can adopt a position, and this does not have to be physical, although it can be, but of, of mentally positioning ourselves with our heart above our heads, 
So that's the way that we worship God, is from that posture. Then I think our worship automatically becomes extravagant. Because we remember, you know, even though there were five of these, I still would go back and say that that first one, to honor and celebrate what God has done, really trumps all of them. That's why we worship. God created us to worship him. And so, why don't you go ahead, would you get your group, the team come back up for us? Now, what I hope is that if this message spoke to you today, what I want to make sure you understand is that these are words of conviction, not of condemnation. God is not a God of condemnation. However, if something poked you a little bit, then I pray that that was the Holy Spirit convicting you that perhaps my way of worshiping needs to change a little bit. And that's a good thing. The other thing is that God is a God of grace, of infinite mercy, and infinite second chances. And so, if you don't feel like you've worshipped correctly or, or with, with extravagance up to this point, that's okay. We get a holy do-over. And so what I have asked is for, uh, for Lady to come back up. And uh, we're just going to do one song. You're going to do a different one or one of the ones we've done already? Do you have a preference? No. Do you? We're witnessing. All right. We're just going to, we're going to do one song. And what I want you to do is to focus on worshiping extravagantly for one song. Three, four, five minutes. Worship with your heart above your head. And if you need to get down on your knees and put your forehead on the floor, that's okay. There's some pillows here. You can even kneel on those or put your head on them, whichever you prefer. Me, I put my head on that because I know what the floor looks like when we clean the rug. A lot of feet walk on this carpet. But get into that, you know, if that, if getting into that position physically helps you get into that position mentally, then do that. You don't have to. But get to a place where you can, can freely and authentically worship God. And authentically is the key word here. Okay, we're not, I'm not mandating in any way, shape, or form that the, there's a right way or a wrong way to worship. Okay, if, if that's what you heard me say today, that is, you need to go listen to it online because that's not what I said. Extravagant worship needs to be authentic worship. All right, but what I am saying 
is that if you've normally just worshipped in a particular way, and maybe your way is like this. Praise you, God. Maybe get out of your comfort zone a little bit. Scripture talks about raising holy hands, okay, as a way to worship God. Try it. Try doing something that you maybe were uncomfortable with before, that you just, you know, that, that maybe you've had a bad attitude about before. I don't know what it is for you, and I'm certainly not going to be the one to tell you because I don't believe that's my place. It's my place to bring God's word to you, and what you do with it is up to you. We also have a rule here that we don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> so, if you didn't like this message, don't send me an email, send one God. 